just wanted to uh, let you know this is part of a series of science breakfasts. Um, we do some of some of you we've seen at, at previous uh, breakfasts, but we, we have some really um, amazing research at GW going on in the sciences. We've done different topics in the past, um, from nanotechnology to to psychology of war and terrorism to dinosaur discoveries. We've we've got run the gamut, and this is a really neat emerging um, area of science and health that I certainly don't know a lot about, so I'm not going to spend much time up here. But just wanted to say thank, thank you all for joining us, and just let you know, we have put um, in the kits, you have contact information for these folks, so you can reach them should you have questions afterwards about their research or the fields in general. They're certainly good, uh, good resources. And we'll be in touch soon about future breakfasts coming up. We have uh, really uh, another interesting one coming up probably in November with uh, an anthropologist who studied uh, autism around the world. So, but today is, is proteomics. So I think um, I'll let the professors in, introduce themselves, um, but I think uh, Akos is going to start. And away we go. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Um, Let's uh, fire this up. Uh, my name is Ekus Vertis, and uh, I'll tell you uh, first about uh, the, the general concept of what we call a protein microscope, and where it where it uh, comes in um, in uh, cutting edge research. Um, in uh, medicine and biology. Um, we have a very interdisciplinary team, um, and this team actually has been chartered as the Institute for Proteomics Technology and Applications. We have um, 11 faculty members, um, and we have funding from both from uh, external sources like the Keck Foundation, as well as um, internal seed money from the university. Uh, we have uh, uh, very extensive collaborations with uh, major institutes like uh, Children's National Medical Center or the Naval Research Lab, NIH, Tiger, and so on, and uh, pretty prolific output of our <laughs> faculty. Um, so let me first uh, frame uh, an, an the question or, or the, the issue we are trying to address um, in our research. Um, First, I, I need to um, clarify what I mean by proteomics, uh, uh, what the definition of proteomics is and, and why it's so important. We all have heard for over a decade about genomics, so we, we, we are familiar with the concepts and the importance of genomics. Turns out uh, when the human uh, genome was uh, explored, uh, it turns out uh, there are about 30,000 genes in the human genome. And uh, when, when you look at closely at these genes and look at what the corresponding molecules do in, in, in an organism, it turns out they are really just a code. And they, um, if, if I want to use an analogy, a computer analogy, they are, they are the, the code that runs on the processor. But the actual actors in any living cell are the proteins. Those are the ones that carry out the actions in the cell, and uh, with the computer analogy, they are the printers or other uh, 
uh, input-output devices that produce results. Um, so what, after um, our efforts on, on genomics, we want to move on now, and not just we, but a uh, whole uh, area of different communities, <coughs> academia, uh, government, uh, industry, want to move on uh, down this um, chain from DNA to RNA, uh, to messenger RNA to the protein level, and try to explore the totality of proteins. That's, what, uh, that's one definition of proteomics. But there, there are tremendous difficulties on this path because um, unlike DNA, uh, the proteins are uh, everywhere in a cell and they are also present at different concentrations and in different modified forms. These are called post-translational modifications. And these uh, modified uh, forms uh, uh, result in a much uh, more diverse array of molecules. So when you have, let's say, 30,000 um, genes, you can easily uh, think about uh, hundreds of thousands of proteins that correspond to those genes. So clearly, it's a much larger task. And also because of the uh, spatial variations of protein concentrations, like here in a neuromuscular junction, you see some proteins uh, stained, and, or, or temporal variations, like in this firefly, of, of the protein concentrations. The current approach, um, as we know it uh, in uh, biochemistry is, uh, and, and in proteomics, is what we call the blender approach. Basically, you harvest uh, some, some cellular component, and uh, through extraction processes and mass spectrometry and uh, uh, chromatography, you can extract information on the proteins. What is lost in this process immediately, uh, right, right at the blender uh, stage, when, when, you, when you harvest these components and, uh, and blend them together, is the spatial information. So clearly... What are NMJs? Uh, neuromuscular junctions. Junctions, okay. Yeah. So clearly, um, in, um, in, this, uh, in this context, we lose all the spatial information, which protein comes from where in that particular tissue. And this is exactly the question we are trying to address with our uh, protein microscope. So um, a protein microscope uh, has to have some attributes, and, and it builds on uh, uh, advances in mass spectrometry and something called uh, scanning near-field optical microscopy. Uh, Mark, uh, after my talk, will, will um, uh, give you details on that part. I will focus on, on the mass spec part here. So what we are doing and what we plan to do further is to use a laser to excite a, a very small volume of uh, the tissue surface or the cell surface, uh, produce a plume of molecules and ions, uh, suck, them in, uh, these, uh, suck them into uh, mass spectrometers through a sampling capillary, and then produce uh, mass spectra for these uh, points, uh, uh, in, uh, point by point for these uh, sections. And then uh, based on uh, a particular mass charge ratio, reconstruct the spatial distribution of certain proteins or other molecular components. Um, uh, we have, we had received the funding from the WM Koch Foundation about two years ago um, to, to uh, 
uh, further these uh, these goals. Um, Could you uh, expand just a little bit more on what you mean by spatial information, spatial distribution? Oops. You want to know exactly what cell it's from, uh, uh, it's from, or what? Basically, uh, let's let's uh, let's look at uh, this one here, uh, or even. These are neuromuscular junctions. So uh, when, when you look at this junction, you see different colors. They are color-coded by immunostaining or other methods, and, uh, and they correspond to different proteins. Now, when, when you, uh, in a classical approach, take a tissue, uh, blend it up, and make a soup out of it, uh, the, the information on where each protein is coming from within the junction is lost. We, we, we don't know what, um, uh, what their uh, local environment is, and we don't know, and therefore we don't know how they interact with each other. Now this is, uh, uh, you, you can get information on this by the very method I'm showing here, using immunostaining and, and uh, uh, green fluorescent protein and other methods, but um, those methods are, are very um, tedious, and you have to work out a particular immunostaining method for every single protein, which is especially challenging when you don't know what to expect in your in your tissue. So, um, in other words, uh, the method we are we are developing um, can dramatically reduce uh, the effort needed to actually uh, map out these spatial distributions. So. Here um, I show you one of the early examples. Um, so we actually have um, built a system that at the moment um, uh, has um, a sample positioning stage, a sampling uh, interface, a mass spectrometer, which I don't show here, um, and the laser. And we separately also have a scanning near-field system uh, that Mark will explain. Um, so we have already started uh, collecting images from simple objects at the moment um, with uh, the spatial resolution that is available with conventional optics. Uh, so that's what you see here. The example is uh, uh, a little bit of strawberry. And what you see here is uh, the seeds of the strawberry um, surrounded by the flesh of the strawberry. And when you, when you start collecting mass spectra point by point, this is an example of a mass spectrum, you find uh, a, a large variety of molecules in here. They're not uh, all assigned here, but uh, you, you can find uh, sugars and uh, other small molecules essential in, in uh, metabolomics. Um, arginine and garlic and, and other um, small molecules like mangiferin, which is a flavonoid um, we identified uh, in strawberry. Uh, this, uh, this 471 peak is this flavonoid and so on. So what you see underneath here um, is our chemical map of the surface of this strawberry that shows in this particular case the distribution of sugar around the seeds. So these are the two seeds you see up there, and this is the distribution of sugar. Another example here, 
very quickly because I'm running over my time. Um, another example is um, a very simple transpiration experiment where we took a, a cut lily and put it in dye solution. I put the stem in the dye solution uh, so it uh, uh, picked up um, this organic dye called toluidin blue and uh, it, uh, the, the dye appeared in the veins of the uh, flower petal. You see the blue coloring. And then we did the imaging of this surface here. This is a larger view of that section. And you see the toluidin blue distribution uh, mirroring that of the optical image. Um, that that is one of the small molecules we identified here, and also sucrose and glucose uh, in those same veins. So, uh, briefly, our future plans. Um, uh, at this juncture, we have achieved um, uh, mass spectrometric imaging of small molecules um, at uh, fairly crude spatial resolution, but it is at atmospheric pressure and uh, it enables us to, to study in vivo, study certain plants and other organisms. Uh, we want to integrate this now with uh, the scanning near field system, Mark will explain, and uh, apply these uh, advances to neuromuscular junction research. Eric will talk about that. Uh, protein expression uh, in HIV, uh, Fata will tell you about that, cancer diagnostics metabolomic studies and, uh, and drug development. So that's, that's what I have to say here. Any questions? If not, we can move on. Just to, while Mark's setting up, just so you know, we're gonna, these guys are gonna kind of run things through with you for about a, a half hour or take any questions. We're actually gonna go up to the lab so that everyone can see sort of the practical use of what has been done with this, um, you know, in about 20 minutes or a half hour. So once we, uh, everyone tells you a little background, we'll see some of this uh, in practice. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. My name is Mark Reeves, as you just heard, and uh, I'm in the physics department here. What I'll talk about are some particular aspects of the project that Akos has alluded to. And uh, a lot of the work that I present here is, has been done by my postdoc, Joan Hoffman, who is just fantastic. Uh, she joined us a year ago. Uh, and what um, the specific topic will be the optical aspects of this uh, project. How do we, um, how do we sort of uh, defeat some traditional laws of physics that you would learn in your elementary physics course to be able to focus the laser down to a spot where it becomes interesting to take this approach to uh, learning the spatial distribution of the proteins. So you've seen this picture already. This is the uh, illustration of the principle that uh, Akash just talked about. Um, this is a drawing of the actual instrument. Um, you'll see this uh, upstairs in real life. What we have here are uh, two atomic force microscopes. And uh, these tiny uh, optical fibers here that are bent are um, basically a head-to-head -head version of this picture. On one side, you have the, um, on one side you have the optical fiber delivering the light. On the other side, you have a capillary that will be sucking up the material that's blasted off the surface. And what we want to take advantage of is the technique of MALDI, which is a technique where the proteins are embedded in a matrix which absorbs the energy from the light. And uh, the miracle of the technique is that when the light, when, when the matrix absorbs the energy, it launches the proteins whole, 
into the region above the sample so they can be sucked up. If the proteins themselves absorb the energy, they'd be broken apart and you'd lose uh, information about their identity. And so the challenge then is to scan back and forth across this sample and uh, collect the proteins that come from each spot where the uh, snob tip and the mass spec capillary pause. So the, um, to sort of motivate this a little bit and answer the question of a bit more about spatial resolution, these are three electron microscope images of a neuromuscular junction. Uh, in, the, in the big overview, you have the muscle cell and you have the uh, nerve cell above it. As we zoom in a little bit more, you can actually see the space, this invaginated region between the nerve and the muscle where the, um, where the information that the nerve sends to the muscle gets transported across. What we want to do is find out what proteins are either found overabundantly or underabundantly in that particular region. Now, if we use standard optic, optics and basically focus our light with lenses and mirrors, we get a spot this big. That means that if we use the technique of MOLLE here uh, to sample the proteins, we sample the proteins <laughs> from this whole composite region of muscle and nerve and neuromuscular junction. With the technique I'm going to talk about today, we have a spatial resolution that gets us down to a tenth of a micron that allows us to sample right in the junction. And so uh, we think that uh, that uh, makes this a more interesting approach because it will allow us then to distinguish the proteins that occur in the muscle alone, in the nerve alone, or in the region in between. Just to put some uh, spatial scale here, this is a human hair, um, uh, probably the human hair from a baby. It's pretty thin, about uh, 50 microns wide. The blue spot is what you would get with conventional optics focusing infrared light. Uh, we use infrared light because that allows us to use the natural water that occurs in the cell as a matrix for the technique, so we don't have to add anything. So, the, uh, so how do we uh, defeat this law of physics, which comes from the fact that uh, 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 an object that's much smaller than the wavelength will diffract the light. Well, it's pretty simple in principle. If you take an opaque screen and poke a hole in it and illuminate from the other side of the screen and then put your object right into the aperture, you'll basically light up only the um, part of the object or the object that sits inside the aperture. <clears throat> so that sounds simple enough in principle. The hard thing comes because uh, our aperture has to be a tenth of a micron in diameter. We also have to position the aperture a tenth of a micron from the uh, sample itself and then um, collect whatever information comes out. Um, so our goal is, is this tenth of a micron and what we're going to take advantage of is atomic force microscopy. Atomic force microscopy is a technique where you simply take a stylus and scan it over the sample and height information from the uh, sample is, is recorded in uh, how high you have to raise or lower the stylus to traverse the valleys and mountains of the sample as you go across. In our case, we're going to have a stylus which is an optical fiber, and that optical fiber at the same time as it's hopping over the sample, scanning across it, will be delivering light to the sample. And so here's some pictures of our optical fibers. Uh, these are both scanning electron microscopes, so some optical fibers that we've sharpened. Uh, the width of this fiber is about uh, two-tenths of a millimeter, 200, uh, 200 microns, and it comes down to a very sharp point. You can see in this expanded view, that scale bar is a micron, that the, uh, the radius here is about 100 to 2 
100 nanometers or 0.1 to 0.2 microns. Um, what you see here are two images that we took from a sample which is just a, a series of metal stripes put down on glass. Uh, this is the AFM image that basically comes from the uh, information about the tip's vertical position as it hops over one stripe, moves to the next one, goes to the next one, and so forth. So we have, um, we have one, two, three, four stripes with three spaces in between. Stripes are about a micron apart. This is a seven by seven micron scan. That's about um, uh, seven of those little squares would fit across the hair that I showed in the first slide. This is the ENSOM image. This is actually the light that was transmitted through, uh, from the fiber through the, um, um, through the sample. And you can see uh, from the uh, resolution of the image that we're getting on the order of one or 0.1 to 0.2 microns in spatial resolution. So that's um, a good proof of principle. We want to do a better proof of principle, which is uh, can we actually blast material off of a sample and reliably, yes? What is EFM? Atomic force microscopy. Sorry about that. Yeah, this is an um, acronym nightmare, but <laughs> we're in Washington, D.C., right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so here, here's, a, here's an experiment where we uh, ask the question, uh, how small of a, uh, of a hole can we make in something using our laser? So what you see here is a, is a, is a very thin film of uh, DHB, which is dihydroxybenzoic acid. It's a, um, it's, it's a solid that uh, can be uh, placed in thin, thin, film, thin film form on a glass substrate. So we just took a microscope slide, put this smooth film on here. This is the before picture made by AFM. We took our stylus and scanned across. It's very smooth. After we um, blasted it with a laser, we got a crater. Um, it looks like one of those uh, meteor craters in New Mexico. Um, there's a hole with a lot of debris around it. And so if we look at the details of this hole, what we see is that we have a hole that's about uh, 15 microns across. And then these uh, little, little mountains here are the uh, debris pile around the edge. And so this is what we got when we took our laser, we sent it through the microscope optics, through the lenses, through the mirrors, and used conventional optics to do the focusing. We got a spot that was about this big on our hair. That's the, about the limit of what you can get conventionally. Um, we went ahead and did the same experiment through our fibers, and we wanted to ask two questions. Uh, first, how small of a hole can we get? And secondly, can we reliably scan across the sample and remove material? And so what you see here are two um, trenches that we dug into the sample by taking our tip and moving across the sample, moving over and coming back. And uh, that looks very nice. Um, what really excites us here is this tiny one, which um, doesn't look like much. Uh, but what you see is maybe a little hole, some stuff piled around it. And if we actually um, look at the top view, the white region here is a place where material's piled up. The black is a region where there's a hole. And if we cut a, uh, if we take a cut across that, we can see that we have indeed made a nice little hole that's about uh, 0.2 microns across. And so on our hair, that's a spot that's about that big. That's about where we want to get to uh, look at uh, to sample material from the neuromuscular junction. So our next steps are going to be to uh, are going to be to uh, integrate this with a mass spectrometer so that basically the stuff that's piled up on the sample uh, gets pulled into the mass spectrometer and is analyzed for protein content. 
and uh, we'll look at the neuromuscular junction. We'll look at uh, uh, issues involving HTLV, and this is what uh, Eric Hoffman is going to talk about next. So just briefly, you've heard a, a num all this neuromuscular junction mentioned a number of times, and where I got involved is they both came to me at Children's Hospital, and I work on a lot of human diseases and run a group of children's, and said, you know, what can we apply this to? What's a disease problem that's pressing, that is approachable by this method? And what immediately uh, came to mind was the neuromuscular junction. Um, briefly, remember muscle fibers are those strings you pull out of chicken breast and they go from joint to joint. So it's like a human hair, except it goes from joint to joint. It's, very, it's the largest cell of the body by far, only one you can see with your naked eye. Um, what causes us to move is the nerve comes from your spinal cord, goes and just touches it in one spot. Okay, and that's what you're looking at, the, the, really the light switch that connects each muscle, to each, each muscle fiber to each nerve. And it's through that light switch that the brain tells the nerve to fire and the, the nerve tells the muscle to fire and that's why we move, talk, etc. And that defines us as animals is actually the ability to move to, towards a, move, a food source defines animals as opposed to plants that have to just sit there. So um, why is that so important and why are we focusing on that? And the, and the Keck Foundation agreed that that was important. Well, some of the most common, most devastating and most least understood problems remain of the neuromuscular junction. One that you've all heard about is Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. Um, another one is spinal muscular atrophy. There's uh, myasthenia gravis. There's a whole series of disorders um, that um, this whole issue of connection between nerve and muscle seems to be the one, of the, if not the major problem, and certainly involved in the disease. Um, and it's very hard to study that. And in fact, we still don't know the cause of ALS. We still don't know why SMN uh, mutations lead to spinal muscular atrophy, which are babies that are born basically lethally floppy. Because again, they're losing that connection. If you lose that connection, you know, you die. You can't breathe, you can't eat, um, and you can't function as an animal or a human. So, so the goal then and the focus the, um, became primarily using this uh, protein microscope to understand even what's at the neuromuscular junction. We have very little idea of, because it's simply been too small to study. It's such a small, tiny specialization, um, which, as was mentioned earlier, even involves three cell types right at that junction. The nerve itself, the insulation, which is the myelin, and the fiber itself. And even the fiber has completely reprogrammed nuclei within it, just a couple, just for that one light switch. So even though a fiber has thousands of nuclei per each cell, the ones right near the neuromuscular junction are completely reprogrammed just to deal with that light switch. And again, we really don't understand how that is, how it happens, or what's going wrong in all these different disorders. So the goal of the protein microscope is the first technique that gives us the resolution, really to scan across this tiny little, highly specialized structure. And then we have mouse models for ALS. We have all the materials at Children's to provide to them to hopefully provide some of the uh, first insights into these diseases so we know what causes them. There's a second part of what we're doing at Children's as part of this project is that the little we know about the neuromuscular junction was actually discovered by not studying humans um, or even mice or rats. It was um, studied back in the 70s and 80s and won quite a few Nobel Prizes on what's called the torpedo. The torpedo is uh, a ray which is related to the one that killed the um, the Australian recently, a naturalist. But these are a subclass of rays which are related to sharks called electric rays. And they are, a, instead of a spike with poison, as was the case with the Australian, they generate electricity. 
So they stun their prey by sending a jolt of about 200 volts through water to shock a fish and then they eat it. Um, those electric rays are through, throughout the world. The one we're studying is one off the coast of California. And that, that what they have done through evolution is the ray has taken a neuromuscular junction and turned it into a one kilogram organ. So it's made a whole entire organ of neuromuscular junctions and that allows it through one firing to generate so much electricity across that light switch, it's like a bazillion light switches, so that they can transmit 200 volts through water and shock a fish. Um, so it's the, the, only, the, the most powerful electrical generating um, biological system that's known. Um, nothing else comes close. And so what we're doing is developing a whole proteomics project to understand what the components of that fish neuromuscular junction organ are and we've made a lot of progress within that so that they can also use that as a first step model before going all the way down to the tiny little thing that is the mammalian neuromuscular fiber. Okay. So do I, am, am I getting the general picture here correctly when, if I say that the goal here is to, by using the microscope, to not only identify what proteins are there but how they are physically arranged in relationship to each other. And so in the case of the, of the diseases, for instance, like ALS, you would compare what you see in that scenario with a normal scenario and see what's different. Exactly. Uh, thank you very much, Eric. Uh, thank you all for coming. I just wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about some of the research we're doing, uh, which actually relates very much to what Akosh and uh, Mark talked about. And it really deals with uh, what's on the surface of cells and what, is it on, what, what are some of the proteins that are over or underexpressed um, on these surfaces. Now, I put a little bit of information about myself. I'm in the medical school. Um, uh, we have some active members. We do have funding, uh, some basic instruments. We do have collaborations, of course, including people at Children's. A uh, number of publications, and I run a program <laughs> on genomics and proteomics, um, and lately we've gotten into the PhD program on this genomics and proteomics. Now, what's, what's really unique about GW is that we have a medical school that is right next to the basic sciences, and that really, really is a significant issue, because now we can take our problems and come across maybe two, three buildings and talk to these PIs, and these are really active PIs. Uh, principal investigators. So we're really excited about this. Um, uh, we got this collaboration going about two and a half years ago or so, and what we've been doing to, during this time has been to generate some preliminary data, uh, uh, one on neuromuscular junctions and one on infected cells, and that's what I want to tell you today. And hopefully this preliminary data can be reproduced when we go back and use this instrument. Now, what I'm showing in here is that um, here's a normal cell that has not been infected, and um, I'm, by, by training, I'm a virologist, so what I'm going to tell you today is two different viruses. One of them is called HTLV1, and it stands for Human T-Lymphotropic Virus Type 1. Um, and it's an amazing virus. It was discovered uh, about 1980s by Bob Gallo at NIH, and it causes cancer, cancer of T-cells. It also does something else. It makes the patients paralyzed from waist down, and it actually touches the NMJs of these patients, and it deregulates the number of molecules that are going back and forth, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And the second um, virus I'm going to talk about is HIV. Of course, you all know it causes AIDS. 
But here's a cell that is, has not been infected. And if you look at the surface membrane, they look normal. And this is what the immune system would recognize and would see. Now, if you have an infected cell and you wait for 24 or 48 hours, the shape of that cell changes dramatically. And in fact, at the end, maybe about another 24, 48 hours later, those cells could die and they could go into what's called apoptosis. In some cases, they don't die. They become actually cancerous. So when you look at the shape, the outer shape of the outer membrane, there's dramatic changes with these cells. And the structure of some of these proteins uh, dramatically changed. Their, uh, their trafficking go back and forth. That really changes. And there's quite a bit of modifications that takes place with these proteins. This is a diagram of um, um, HTL-1 infected uh, patients all over the world. There's about 25 million people who are infected. Um, they either come down with uh, uh, neurological problems or they come down with cancer. So it's very prevalent. We get quite a few samples from Japan, actually. We have great collaborators who get um, ATL samples and HAMTSP samples from Japan. Um, we just started doing collaborations with people with South America, and this is in collaboration with Peter Hotez's department. Uh, where they do have connections to Brazil, and, and therefore it's easier for us to get some of these samples. Now, this is a, um, we, we have a RAF model um, of HTLD infection and some of the abnormalities that take place in these NMJs. Um, and, and people have talked about the number of cells and, and how significant these interactions are. I think Eric put it very uh, nicely, uh, the interactions and how you really need them to do basic functional activities. Um, these are some of the proteins that are supposed to be there. Um, I don't want to go into the details of these proteins, but I, what I want to show you is that if the cells are infected with HTLV1, number of these proteins change their levels. They either go up or down. And these are the proteins that um, the levels have changed dramatically. And in this set of experiments, we've used what Akush talked about, which is the blender experiment. We basically took the samples, threw it literally, into a um, uh, blender that has nothing more than detergent in it and some salt. And we isolated a soup and ran it through a moldy and found out what these proteins were, which is a very crude way of doing things. And we totally lost the spatial understanding of how these proteins talk to one another and whether they bind or not or whether they're inside the membrane or outside the membrane. We, of course, do have some unknown proteins. We're working on those. We're very excited. We found three new proteins that are overexpressed on the surface of these cells, and we haven't seen them before in the uninfected cells. And that's significant, because if you have new set of proteins, you may be able to come in with antibodies <coughs> that would recognize those proteins and selectively kill those cells. So that's really the significance of proteins that are overexpressed. That's where we are with the HTLV project. In the next two, three slides, I want to tell you about HIV project. HIV is really dramatic today. There is not just one kind of HIV. There are different kinds, different clades of HIV, and they're spread all over the world. Um, we have access pretty much to uh, about 1,200 cases of uh, fresh samples of HIV where we get from um, South Africa, from middle parts of Africa, and also Southeast Asia. Um, these viruses are very different from the ones you would find uh, in U.S. They behave differently. They're recombinants, and in fact, they cause a lot of new trouble. Um, vaccines don't work on them. A lot of the drugs don't work on them. So we have a new set of viruses. So for instance, in here, you can see there's a clade B, but in parts of Africa, these clades have changed and gone through recombination. In the past, believe it or not, since 1960s, 
past about 45, 50 years or so. So there's tremendous evolution that's taking place with these viruses, and we want to understand what is expressed on the surface of these infected cells. And here we did something a little bit more selective as opposed to using the blender approach. We took the cells and we labeled them on the surface with a molecule called biotin. And these biotins uh, really stand out and they, once they're labeled, it becomes very easy for you to bind to some beads, to some sugar beads, and pull down the membrane and pull down the proteins that are uh, labeled with biotin. So we selectively pull out proteins that are sitting on the membrane. Once we do that, we get rid of all the proteins that were not labeled, so we selectively do proteomics um, using um, these biotin pull-down assays. And we found a number of proteins. Uh, we've written a manuscript on this. We've submitted it. Uh, I hope it'll be accepted maybe in about a month, month and a half or so. But there are a number of new proteins that we found that were normally not there. And that's really, really exciting for us. Uh, because now we have number of drugs and antibodies that we can target these proteins. If you look at the uh, pie chart, there's about 47 membrane proteins we found, uh, some 18% membrane associated, some cytoplasmic, and some that we have no idea why they're there. So <coughs> the, the preliminary data that we're getting now, before we actually go to the instrument, is really phenomenal. We're really excited about this. This is my last slide. It's about one of those proteins. And it shows you how before an infection, this is cross-section of a single area of a cell. So you have, let's say, two, three cells, and you're cutting um, through this cell cross-sectional. And what you can see that there's this protein called BTK. It's an important enzyme for development. And the enzyme most of the time is in the cytoplasm. The blue here is the nucleus. And the protein is scattered all over the cytoplasm. Once you have an infection, what happens is that the protein actually <coughs> Become, it localizes onto the membranes and it becomes these little pinches of proteins. And again, it goes back to the second slide. I showed you how the membrane um, structure completely changes and proteins reshuffle. So we do have some confirmation of this data uh, and we're, we're doing much more now in terms of trying to find if this data is real using antibodies and drugs. But again, it took us a while, it took, us, it took us about two years or so to generate this data, and we would have never done this. We would have never gone this path if it wasn't for collaborations between people in physics and chemistry. And with that, I will close and take any questions. Dumb question. Please. Stupid, but how do you actually identify a protein? By its amino acids, by its chemical atomic makeup? Or so there is this, I, I can leave it to the experts. Okay. Well, um, current. Uh, the most uh, efficient technology uh, at the moment is mass spectrometry. Um, when you try to identify proteins, you always start with a very complex mixture because of, uh, of the very large number of different components in, in organisms. So, so you start with a separation method. The separation method, the most two most uh, used methods are gel electrophoresis, mm -hmm. uh, which is used in combination with a particular type of mass spectrometry that is based on lasers um, and, uh, and the matrix. So you embed the proteins in an organic matrix and then use a laser to, to desorb them without degradation. And uh, this way you can uh, introduce uh, those proteins into a mass spec and accurately measure their mass uh, uh, the, the corresponding ions, mass of the corresponding ions. Uh, 
you, get, you also have the option of um, digesting, breaking up these proteins, uh, uh, making them into smaller peptides, and then uh, use the same approach with mass spectrometry to, um, to uh, identify the peptides. And from the peptides, using bioinformatics and the large protein database, you can actually pick out the appropriate proteins. Uh, now, um, the other method, uh, uh, the other technology is uh, called electrospray mass spectrometry in which uh, you use um, uh, solution phase uh, uh, separation with uh, high performance liquid chromatography and then you can, the separated components are directly sprayed into a mass spectrometer through this electrospray ion source. and. Um, can be identified or, again, um, can be um, uh, digested uh, into peptides and the peptides identified. Or, yet another alternative, uh, you can break apart the ions inside the mass spectrometer using uh, collisional activation. So this, this, these, two, uh, these two technologies actually won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2002. Um, John Fenn uh, got it for the electrospray, and uh, Koichi Tanaka <coughs> from Japan um, got the Nobel Prize for the laser desorption. I think my question was even dumber. What exactly, when you've got a protein, right. it's identified by its component amino acids? Or well, a, a protein um, has uh, actually multiple layers of structures. So uh, the, the so-called primary structure is the sequence of the amino acid residues in the protein. Uh, but then you, you get um, a particular um, uh, organization above that, that is the confirmation of uh, certain um, domains that is called the secondary structure. These are beta sheets and alpha helices and the like. Uh, beyond that comes a tertiary structure, the, the folding of these uh, structural motifs into uh, an even more complex okay. form. And beyond that comes the, the quaternary structure, which is uh, the complexation of the different folded proteins into complexes. Now this part is actually the most exciting because uh, practically all biological interactions are governed by these non-covalent complexes of various proteins, protein-protein and protein-nucleic uh, acid complexes. Okay, that helps, thank you. I, I may just want to re-emphasize something. What's so unique about this instrument, um, this MALDI we're talking about aspect, is that you not only identify proteins, you also can identify drugs that bind to proteins, you can identify nucleic acids, RNAs, DNAs. Um, the, the application is remarkable on this instrument. And in fact, I, I understand that it was in many chemistry departments before, but John Fenn and Tanaka basically applied that instrument into peptides and into a little bit more into biochemistry, and that's where it really took off. And I would say that's where the field of, bio, uh, field of proteomics took off. Right. because of this particular instrumentation and the level of sensitivity is remarkable. I used to be able to purify proteins and sequence them. I would need microgram amounts, which would mean I have to go into a cold room for about a year and purify some complex. 
I don't have to do that today. I can use thousandfold or ten thousandfold less material. So it has truly revolutionized the way we look at complexes and the way we look at diseases. You look at children, for instance, they don't have a lot of blood. They don't have a lot of um, samples you can use. Um, uh, again, you can do these kind of experiments using this uh, moldy top or, or this moldy uh, equipment. So it's, it's been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you mentioned the smaller molecules. Uh, I'd like to add uh, that uh, indeed proteins and proteomics is uh, just one of the major new fields that uh, emerged after um, genomics. There is a there's a whole new field of lipidomics where people look at the lipids and and also metabolomics, which may be uh, the more most complex of all where you actually look at all the metabolic processes and, uh, and look at the small molecules, their distributions. The smaller molecules have actually much larger diversity than uh, chemical diversity than uh, proteins or, or uniform uh, compound classes <coughs> that respond the same way to uh, ion sources. So, so metabolomics is, is really taking off, um, especially with drug companies who are very interested in the small molecule trafficking. All the omics. Yeah. Yeah. I just one, I want to hug one more question. The press release says this will allow scientists for the first time to study how proteins interact inside living cells. How, how accurate is that claim? It's, it's very accurate because right now what we do is, um, for instance, using this blender approach, uh, we take this soup and we put it on a plate and we spray it with some chemical so it crystallizes with this chemical and then we fly this complex into the mass spec machine. We don't have to do that anymore. Um, not only that, but we, we don't have to use um, any other pressure other than atmospheric pressure, the air that you and I breathe. So we can take live cells today using this technology uh, that Akos and Mark talked about. We can take live cells that are talking to one another, go in and literally zap in between these two cell types or zap the surface membrane, fly those proteins into the mouse spec and find out what they are. And that's really critical because a lot of times proteins don't just sit in one place, they move around depending on infection, depending on development. You see this, for instance, in stem cells a lot, where you have development happening and proteins traffic in many different uh, compartments. And for us to know where proteins are at a given point, we really need live cells. We don't want to use dead cells. I think that's, that's really a key issue. Mm -hmm. Is this microscope you're working on unique, or are there are people working on the same technology? There's, uh, uh, well, the the field of mass spec imaging is is a very very fast growing field. So it's very hard to make a statement because if I make a statement, there's nobody else today. By tomorrow, by the time somebody writes an article about this, it may not be true. But what what we do know is that the there's only one other group. Um, in the world, uh, that is the Renato Zenobis group at the ETH in Zurich. Uh, they are uh, trying to combine um, a scanning near-field optical microscope with a mass spectrometer. And uh, these two groups are basically competing neck and neck um, to, to get to 
better and 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 uh, you know uh, uh, better spatial resolution, better mass resolution, and, and better results. Their focus uh, is slightly different. They are more interested in in applying this to to the uh, to nanotechnology and more uh, small organic molecules or inorganics. Uh, our focus is more biological. Who's the PI on their group? On uh, Renato Zenobi. Renato Zenobi. Yes. We only have about 10 minutes to go, I guess. May I suggest that we, we hop upstairs and, and just uh, take a quick look and get, get a view, and, and we can obviously ask some more questions up there if there are any other questions.